0: welcome to the Mariner's Library with me Chris Stammer Major and in this episode we're beginning a new book it's called White Sails Shaking it's edited by Ira Henry Freeman and it was published in 1948 and before we get into it to give you an idea of uh, what's ahead whether it might be worth sticking around for this reading let me read to you the inside cover of the dust jacket a fantastic opportunity to literally judge a book by its cover Every true water man will find grand entertainment in this salty anthology. Ira Henry Freeman's selection of excerpts from accounts of famous sailing cruises is brimful of the joy and the drama of plunging canvas. Variety is the keynote of this collection of 24 actual sailing experiences garnered from sources as diverse as the personalities of their writers. Here is Jack London's humorous Sharks in the Boatyard, a nautical Mr Blanding, Close by George Dibbon's How Rugged Can You Get, the day-to-day account of a desperately gruelling 101-day journey in a 32-foot yawl from Balboa to San Francisco, during which the food ran out, the sails were torn ragged, and the two men fell ill of fatigue and malnutrition. White Flannel Days recalls that legendary era when millionaire yachtsmen commanded their schooners from deck chairs while spoon-fed on caviar by uniformed stewards. For contrast there is Savages to the leeward. an excerpt from the classic adventures of that old sea dog Joshua Slocum, first man to circumnavigate the globe single-handed in his little sloop, Spray. Stories of storm and clear sailing, shipwreck and rescue, voyages of enraptured honeymooners and grizzled old salts, they're all here, vigorously jostling one another through the pages of the anthology. In his introduction, Mr Freeman writes, For all I know, this may turn out to be a subversive book. Conceivably, it could seduce some frustrated breadwinner into sailing away to the South Seas on a little yacht forever. If you're a sailor, either blue water or armchair variety, here is your challenge. Fair winds and an ocean of adventure awaits you in white sails shaking. Well, if that doesn't convince you to listen to this book, I don't know what possibly could. Um, If you'd like to offer some support to this podcast, please remember to go over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for $5 a month you can help support the production of these. It takes about an hour each day to do this. I think personally there's a lot of value in these stories and the opportunity to share them with sailors in the future is one I think we should take. If you feel the same, a little support would be much appreciated. But now without any further ado, white sails shaking. Introduction. For all I know, this may turn out to be a subversive book. Conceivably, it could seduce some frustrated breadwinner into leaving his wife and children and sailing away to the southern seas on a little yacht forever, like George Dibbon, whose odyssey you will find abridged herein. On second thought, however, perhaps the book will prevent any such misdemeanor by providing vicariously that escape from duty and tedium which all of us long for sometimes. Escape. That's the prize for which men endure the discomfort and danger that a long passage on a small boat inevitably entails. In compiling this anthology, I had to read a hundred volumes by yachtsmen who had chased the horizon, and in virtually every case, it seemed to me that it was the escape desire as much as the trade wind that drove the boat. For where else but to see in his own tiny ship could an escapologist flee in these congested days? Civilization, such as it is, spreads rapidly over all lands. Formerly, one who would get away from it all had a wide choice of convenient mountaintops and tropical islands. Now, likely as not, a radio station broadcasts dits and dars from the peak in Darien, and an airfield stamps its geometry on Lotus Isle. No, only at sea, actually out on the featureless waste, are you really alone you and such shipmates, as you can tolerate, alone in an unbroken circle of seven miles diameter for weeks, perhaps months at a time. Once you have sailed the shore with its coastwise traffic below the rim, your situation becomes a constant challenge. A mere one and a half inches of wood separates you from a watery grave miles deep. A rag and a stick are your only means of propulsion. A star and a magnetised needle must suffice, to point the way. All the rest is up to you. Almost as entirely up to you, despite new fangled gimmickies like Loran and HO214, as it was to Leif Erikson, a pioneer blue water cruising man of 950 years ago. Now, here is the next strongest lure about yacht cruising. The first is escape. The second is playing Viking. Try it someday. Just sail your sloop the twenty miles from the race to Block Island, and when you have raised the breakwater light at Great Sulk Pond, right on the nose, see if you do not, indeed, feel marvellously like Leaf the Lucky. Doubtless, many more reasons can be fished out to explain why, for a hundred and fifty years, sane men have been scudding off soundings in those inadequate contrivances called yachts when there is no necessity for it. But they are minor reasons. The principal compulsions are to run away from a world that is too much for us, and to pit oneself nakedly, as it were, against the elements. This project was to make an attractive collection of stories extracted from books of yacht cruising under sail, mostly long distance cruising. Since it was specified that all the stories be allegedly true, no yarning, however beguiling, none of the voluminous fiction of the sea could be included. Voyages of exploration, of training ships, of men of war, of clipper ships, of pirates, of passenger vessels were likewise ruled out. Also eliminated were the famous passages made by shipwrecked mariners in lifeboats, and more recently by downed aviators on rafts. The restriction to sailing craft is explained, if not justified, by pure prejudice on the editor's part. Undeniably, much useful work may be performed by motorboats, but when disguised as yachts, They are an abomination and shall be ostracised here. Every anthology is judged, of course, by the taste shown by the compiler in making his selection, but no human being will yield priority to another in matters of taste. An editor could never convince you that his judgement was better than yours. All he can do is construct a plausible apology for choosing as he did. I sought in the first place variety of experience, useless to look here for an illustrative history of yachting or for any other particular sequence in the table of contents somewhere in the heap of prose you will discover the frightful tales of alan gerbolts and douglas graham madmen who defied the ocean gods single-handedly and were punished hellishly for their impiety for contrast there is an elegant account of millionaires commanding their schooners from deck chairs while spoon-fed on caviar by uniformed stewards in the report of the America's historic race in 1851, you will feel the intense preoccupation of everyone concerned. For utter nonchalance, I give you Wes Marta, who loafed in mid-Atlantic for a month without once knowing or caring where he was. Richard Morey's long, steady slide before the ceaseless southeast trades reads like a dream, Tompkins' slugfest westward round Cape Horn like a nightmare. All thrown together are gales and calms wrecks certainly and rescues illness drowning love and happiness thrills and humor ventures into the petrified arctic to molten tahiti clear around the world voyages by enraptured honeymooners as well as by lonely old salts and a lot more besides beyond variety my principal consideration was readability measured against that stick A few renowned yachtsmen, unfortunately, disqualified themselves. I did not crassly ignore the distinguished Dr. Worth, who once pushed his turn four more than a thousand miles in five tremendous days, or Commodore Martin, whose jolie brise earned an excellent ocean racing record, or the dashing Upper Fox, who splashed gaily from England to France and back, perched on the sliding seat of a racing canoe. Writing by these authorities are treasuries of technical advice for the active yachtsman, but to hear the authors tell it, their feats were nothing at all, and I did not believe that the general reader would be fascinated by nothing at all. The truth is that for my purpose, these celebrities were just too good. Their yachts and seamanship were so perfect that little happened to them worth mentioning in a fireside entertainment like this. Too often in yachting, adventure is spelled misadventure, but misadventure means good reading. Narrow as my chosen subject was, it proved necessary, as I have mentioned, to peruse a hundred books in the English language. There was many a candidate, but only space enough to reproduce a double dozen excerpts here. The publisher and I hope to be forgiven. Who would not be conscious today of how many trees must be chopped down to make a book? The editor thanks the several authors, publishers, literary agents and copyright owners for permission to reprint the material that comprises this anthology and credit is given on the first page of each extract. Readers who may be stimulated to seek out the complete works are warned that most are out of print. Thanks are also expressed to authorities of the New York Public Library for making so many source books available and for providing working space as well as to my own mate and bosun, Beatrice and Rosalind Oppenheim, for general labour, generously contributed. Fair Wind. Ira Henry Freeman, Woodbury, Long Island. Sea Fever by John Macefield I must go down to the seas again, to the lonely sea and the sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by, and the wheels kick, and the wind's song, and the white sails shaking, and a grey mist on the sea's face, and a grey dawn breaking. I must go down to the seas again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls crying. I must go down to the seas again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gulls way and the whales way, where the wind's like a wetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover, and quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. 1. Sharks in the Boat Yard by Jack London To build, says Dr Johnson, is to be robbed. He was speaking of houses, but his epigram is equally true of boats. To have a yacht built to order is more trouble than an ocean cruise, The ship chandlers and mechanics are more inimical than gales. The famous Jack London, an author who had been a working seaman and was about to become a yachtsman, found this out the hard way in 1907. He and his wife Charmian had decided to circumnavigate the earth in their own little ship. They spent infinite pains and three times as much money as they possessed getting their dream boat constructed. And when, at long painful last, the 55-foot Snark was launched, nothing about her was right. Just the same, the Londons, with a yachtsman friend and three paid hands, sailed from San Francisco to the Solomon Islands, where the cruise had to be abandoned because of illness. Here is the anguished and expensive birth of the Snark, in the London manner. The Snark is a small boat. When I figured $7,000 as her generous cost, I was both generous and correct. I have built barns and houses and I know the peculiar trait such things have of running past their estimated cost. This knowledge was mine, and already mine, when I estimated the probable cost of the building of the snark at $7,000. Well, she cost $30,000. Now don't ask me, please. It is the truth. I signed the checks and I raised the money. Of course, there is no explaining it inconceivable and monstrous is what it is, as you will agree. I know, ere my tale is done. Then there was the matter of delay. I dealt with forty-seven different kinds of union men, and with one hundred and fifteen firms, and not one union man, and not one firm of all the union men and all the firms ever delivered anything at the time agreed upon, nor ever was on time for anything except payday and bill collection. Men pledged me their immortal souls, that they would deliver a certain thing and a certain date as a rule, and after such pledging, they rarely exceeded being three months late in delivery. And so it went, and Charmian and I consoled each other by saying what a splendid boat the snark was, so staunch and strong. Also, we would get into the small boat and row around the snark, and gloat over her unbelievably wonderful bough. Think, I would say to Charmian, of a gale off the China coast, and of the snark hove to that splendid bow of hers driving into the storm. Not a drop will come over that bow. She'll be as dry as a feather, and we'll be all below playing whist while the gale howls and Charmian would press my hand enthusiastically and exclaim, it's worth every bit of it, the delay and expense and the worry and all the rest, oh what a truly wonderful boat. Whenever I looked at the bow of the snark or thought of her watertight compartments, I was encouraged. Nobody else, however, was encouraged. My friends began to make bets against the various sailing dates of the snark. Mr Widget who was left behind in charge of our Sonoma ranch, was the first to cash his bet. He collected on New Year's Day 1907. After that, the bets came fast and furious. My friends surrounded me like a gang of harpies, making bets against every sailing date I set. I was rash, and I was stubborn. I bet, and I bet, and I continued to bet, and I paid them all. Why, the womankind of my friends grew so brave that those among them who had never bet before began to bet with me, and I paid them too. Never mind, said Charmian to me, just think of that bow and being hove to on the China Sea. You see, I said to my friends, when I paid the latest bunch of wages, neither trouble nor cash is being spared in making the snark the most seaworthy craft that ever sailed out through the Golden Gate – That is what causes all the delay. In the meantime, editors and publishers with whom I had contracts pestered me with demands for explanations. But how could I explain to them when I was unable to explain to myself or when there was nobody, not even Roscoe, to explain to me? The newspapers began to laugh at me and to publish rhymes anent the snark's departure with refrains like Not yet, but soon. And Charmian cheered me up by reminding me of the bow, and I went to a banker and borrowed 5,000 more. There was one recompense for the delay, however. A friend of mine, who appears to be a critic, wrote a roast of me, of all I had done and of all I was ever going to do, and he planned to have it published after I was out on the ocean. I was still on the shore when it came out, and he has been busy explaining ever since. And the time continued to go by. One thing was becoming apparent, namely that it was impossible to finish the snark in San Francisco. She had been so long in the building that she was beginning to break down and wear out. In fact, she had reached the stage where she was breaking down faster than she could be repaired. She had become a joke. Nobody took her seriously, least of all the men who worked on her. I said we would sail just as she was and finish building her in Honolulu. Promptly, she sprang a leak. That had to be attended to before we could sail. I started her for the boatways. Before she got to them she was caught between two huge barges and received a vigorous crushing. We got her on the ways and part way along the ways spread and dropped her through stern first into the mud. It was a pretty tangle, a job for wreckers not boat builders, There are two high tides every 24 hours, and at every high tide, night and day for a week, there were two steam tugs pulling and hauling on the snark. There she was, stuck, fallen between the ways and standing on her stern. Next, and while still in that predicament, we started to use the gears and castings made in the local foundry, whereby power was conveyed from the engine to the windlass the castings had flaws they shattered asunder the gears ground together and the windlass was out of commission following upon that the 70 horsepower engine went out of commission this engine came from new york so did its bed plate there was a flaw in the bed plate there was a lot of flaws in the bed plate and the 70 horsepower engine broke away from its shattered foundations reared up in the air smashed all connections and fastenings and fell over on its side and the snark continued to stick between the spreadways, and the two tugs continued to haul vainly upon her. Never mind, said Charmian. Think of what a staunch, strong boat she is. Yes, said I, and of that beautiful bow. So we took heart and went at it again, The ruined engine was lashed down on its rotten foundations. The smashed castings and cogs of the power transmission were taken down and stored away, all for the purpose of taking them to Honolulu, where repairs and new castings could be made. Somewhere in the dim past, the Snark had received on the outside one coat of white paint. The intention of the colour was still evident. However, when one got it in the right light, the Snark had never received any paint on the inside, On the contrary, she was coated inches thick with the grease and tobacco juice of the multitudinous mechanics who had toiled upon her. Never mind, we said, the grease and filth could be planed off. And later, when we fetched Honolulu, the snark could be painted at the same time she was being rebuilt. Well, that's all for today. I hope you're enjoying the story so far. The next instalment will be available in the Mariner's Library shortly. And remember, of course, you've got all the content over on YouTube and the Mariner podcast. And of course, Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. But for now, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you're safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.